Good evening, everyone. I'm Mary Wood for the Center for the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education. It's my pleasure to be here with you this evening, which is Wednesday, February 4th, 2009, in the green room of the Veterans Building in San Francisco. Our Points of View lecture series, along with the Meet the Artist interviews and Various other educational programming are produced by the San Francisco Ballet Center for Dance Education, directed by Charles Chip McNeil, and administered by adult education coordinator Cecilia Beam. Many of these lectures and interviews, as you may know, are recorded for possible podcasting. So I'm going to issue a warm welcome to those of you who are here with me and those of you who may be listening to the podcast. Last year's monumental New New Works Festival continues to enrich us. Program two opens with a reprise of one of those works, Naked, choreographed by Stanton Welch. This is the company's fifth piece by Welch. We first saw his work performed by dancers from his native Australia during the United We Dance Festival in 1995. Some of you might probably remember that. He has then created four other pieces, Maninas, Tycho, Tutu, and in 2006, Falling. You might also recall Stanton Welch spent time here in the San Francisco Ballet School as a student in the late 1980s. While he returned to Australia, danced as a member of the company there, he began to to choreograph. He's accumulated an impressive portfolio seen in the major companies around the world since then, and he is currently the director of the Houston Ballet, where he's been since 2003. In this current piece... Naked, he chose the Poulain Concerto in D minor for two pianos to support his expression of a tribute to his roots, or classicism, as you can see from the tutu and the traditional look of the dancer. He's cast five couples, and they seem to represent some of the familiar, familiar types of our tradition, the sparkling soubrette, and her bravura consort, the melting adagio couple, the commanding prima ballerina. The other two couples, in his words, add the fireworks. The Poulenc Concerto contributes a structure and provides motifs that Welsh can reflect in movement. One thought that he shared with writer Cheryl Osla is possibly my favorite, and that is his sense of community and continuity that he strives to express, and that it's as if all the dancers are always there, some of them dancing just beyond our view. When you see it, try to imagine all the dancers dancing everywhere, and these are just the ones we can see. The program closes with in the middle, somewhat elevated, choreographed by William Forsyth to the electronic score by Tom Villem. Have you ever wondered about the meaning of the titles of the ballets created by choreographer William Forsyth? Who else would name a piece the vertiginous thrill of exactitude? What could possibly be the meaning of in the middle, somewhat elevated? And it does have meaning. A show of hands, does anybody know what the meaning is? Oh, 
a few of you. Well, it's the two golden cherries that hang above the center of the stage in the middle, somewhat elevated. It's hard to realize that In the Middle was first seen here 20 years ago, entering our rep in 1989, having been created on the Paris Opera Ballet in 1987. As a matter of fact, we've seen the climactic pas de deux as part of many a gala, and the work can probably be classified as a late 20th century classic to be seen in the repertoire of practically every company in the world. I thought to myself flippantly, this is the serenade of the late 20th century. Forsyth used a commissioned score, electronic, by Tom Willems, who is his frequent collaborator. It drives the high-tech choreography, which extends, distorts, modifies, and exaggerates the classical idiom. Its structure, that the piece's structure, is that of theme and variations. And it's challenging if you see the piece enough times, you see the theme and you see the variations. The single ballerina's opening solo moves to the extremely complex pas de deux and the ensemble designs as theme and variations. And I would call your attention to um, the dancer with the red hair, which is actually a wig, which for many years the, dan the lead dancer had to wear the red wig because the dancer who created the part at the Paris Opera had a red hairdo like that. But that's been changed apparently. I'm not sure what, who's directive. In the April 2006 edition of Dance Magazine, Forsyth is featured, and the subtitle of the article is not content with remaking ballet, the choreographer is pushing theatrical boundaries. When a critic said, Forsyth has broken every rule in the classical dance book, he responded, I'd like to know first what they mean by rules, and which rules. The rules are not stated anywhere. They do not have legal status. There's really no legal function to ballet, which gives you a clue to how William Forsyth thinks. I actually am partial to another observation which has been made about him, and this describes his, his ethos. Forsyth's choreography is grounded in a deconstructive reconsideration of the possibilities of classical ballet structures and theatricality. And there's no question that it's just stunning. Well, Val Canaparoli is among a small handful of San Francisco ballet artists with a long, long association with the company, arriving in 1972 on a Ford Foundation scholarship to study in this school. <clears throat> he began choreographing in the late 1970s and has contributed works to more than 35 companies worldwide and growing, from the Royal Winnipeg Ballet to the State Theater Ballet of South Africa. He was resident choreographer for Ballet West in Salt Lake City from 1993 to 1997 and currently holds that role, I believe currently, with the Tulsa Ballet since 2001. He also includes contributions to opera companies, the San Francisco Symphony and ACT. If you've seen A Christmas Carol in the last couple of years, the dances were created by Our Val. And he continues to perform 
as a principal character dancer with the company. His interpretation of many of the character parts in the repertoire has set the standard for generations of artists. We attribute to Val the absolutely definitive interpretation of the Mouse King in The Nutcracker. Will you please welcome Val? Now, before we actually start the first uh, clip, you have choreographed for, well, you've choreographed since forever. Um, what was your first piece for San Francisco Ballet? Uh, it was Ballet called Love Lies Bleeding. I think it was that. It just, I think you're right. I've been I think... here for so long, I should be 100 years old. I don't know. <laughs> it's like, um, yeah, Love Lies Bleeding. It was a Stravinsky festival we were doing. I, I believe it's 85, I, 83 or... I'm not sure. I'm, loose, I'm losing track of time these days. Yeah. But. And I think it was even earlier than that. But Oh, wow. Yeah. <laughs> anyway, um, and I, I just ha- I can't resist. Billy Forsyth comes up with odd names. How on earth did you come up with the name Love Lies Bleeding? <laughs> uh, the ballet was about plant life, which is odd right there. But Love Lies Bleeding is a form of a cactus, rolling cactus in the desert, from what I remember. So, hence, it was a great, great name. It was kind of provocative. It's more provocative than the ballet was, but I love <laughs> <laughs> um, And then the, um, the years went by, and you created any number of um, works all over the place. Right. Um, what would you have to say about, and, you know, fairly briefly, but just a young choreographer starting to create works. How lucky or not is that? Again, it was strange because my my career, I started late, and I had a huge background in music and theater, and that really shaped me choreographing. But however, I didn't know at the time what choreography was or what even a dance career was. So the light bulb just sort of went on after studying theater and music and directing and uh, acting, all sorts of different categories. And I went, wow, this is meant to be. And I just was thrilled watching other choreographers work. I was just mesmerized. Even if I wasn't in the ballet, I'd just be in the doorway constantly. And I just started working on students or other, other of our dancers who didn't mind me experimenting on them and working on many schools throughout, Marin Ballet, school in Palo Alto. I'm mm-hmm. not sure what that was at the time, but uh, just caught the eye of Kent and Francia Stoll and Pacific Northwest Ballet in Seattle, of which they really started me going. That was my first company to uh-huh. choreograph for in 1980. And that really sparked it. And they were really instrumental in getting me started. And then Michael Smeon asked me after he saw the work that I did for them. But it's, mm-hmm. it's just something that happened. It just fell in my lap. I didn't set out being a choreographer. I, just, I still pinch myself now going, what are you doing? You were not trained for this. You didn't have a dance background in school. It wasn't, I wasn't exposed to it in school. So it just, things just fell in place, basically. Um, we will definitely get around to talking about this season's work, uh, the Ibsen house, Ibsen's house, um, but I want to sort of wind up to it. Watching Ibsen's house made me um, recall your use of dance to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And you've experimented with a number of other ways of choreographing, but what we're going to see now is, ah, a clip from Hamlet and Ophelia, Pas de Deux, 
The clip is from 1985. Uh, again, this was, uh, it was a Shakespeare season. Yeah. We're going to try and talk over it. We'll see how that works. And uh, Michael Smeon told me, I'm giving you Hamlet and Ophelia, or Hamlet, and you have 10 minutes. <laughs> so I basically, I always thought Ophelia was the most tragic character in Hamlet. She was the one that was... To me, uh, that I like the most as far as creating a character and most diverse as far as coming in contact of each of the major characters. And in this case, this is Joanna Berman and Kirk Peterson. It was done on them. Um, So I really based it on Ophelia's point of view, and it really was apotted in 10 minutes. I was just fascinated. I've seen the work recently because it exists in many companies around the country. And to see maybe, I don't know if it's fair to say a foreshadowing of Ibsen, yeah. but that, that expression I is... I forgot about that lift. <laughs> Scary. <laughs> you've, taken, you've taken serious drama. Right. And these, are not, these dancers are not miming a story. No. Uh, I tend to, in storytelling, not to do very much mime and do it through... Uh, uh, character study or through the body and not so much conversation but creating a story through emotion and mm-hmm. through the full body uh, and in this case very much worked for me uh, this ballet has been done maybe by about 10 companies of uh, which uh, next season will be done by company Nevada as well most recently in Ballet West and prior to that Pennsylvania Ballet so it, it is done still even after all these years. Down this season, the audiences will see Lilac Garden, Mm -hmm. choreographed by Anthony Tudor. And Tudor, in the 1930s, pioneered the idea of conveying emotion and psychological difficulty with choreography, not mime. Any influence there that you're aware of? <laughs> There's none that I know of because I was, uh, San Francisco Ballet wasn't exposed to Tudor, Tudor's works. Uh, American Ballet Theater cr- uh, performed them all the time. I heard so much about them from other dancers. Mm-hmm. Um, and it wasn't until later that I was able to see them. There wasn't a lot of influence, but I can see some parallels, which to me is, is great for me. Mm-hmm. But uh, no, I, didn't, I was not exposed that much to Tudor. Um, Luke Christensen, though, yes, the Christensen brothers, their background was, in many ways, storytelling, vaudeville. Um, And so I I would believe I was more influenced by the Christensen brothers than than Tudor. Because, again, West Coast, East Coast. I mean, the Christensen's were the West Coast, and that was my exposure. Well, it would be interesting when we get to the Tudor later in the season to um, kind of watch for that concept of storytelling, but not just story, but the, what the characters are feeling mm-hmm. and experiencing. Okay, speaking of storytelling, this is, why don't you tell us what this is? Uh, it's Polchinella. Uh, Let's go ahead. Gosh, it. when it was done, I, I don't remember. <laughs> 91 or 2 or 3. <laughs> but we based it in a train station, so we took it in a contemporary way. Uh, it's in black and white, and whenever... Pulcinella gets knocked out. He dreams in color. So there are two sets of costumes. Everyone had a colored costume and a black and white costume. So if you think that's a designer nightmare. But 
As you see here, this is the, the black and white. Uh, designer's Nadine Bayless out of uh, London. That's uh, Ashley Weeder. As <laughs> I was going to say, look at the two main characters in white. Ashley Weeder and Christopher Stoll. And the, Ashley Weeder is now uh, director of Joffrey Ballet, and Christopher Stoll is now art- artistic director of Oregon Ballet Theater, which I work with them both. I'm being hired by children now, <laughs> <laughs> now <laughs> which this is, is great. So this is you choreographing the old... Talk about vaudeville. Talk oh. about Willem Christensen. Oh, this is totally influenced by them. But it was fun uh, working with the score, the Stravinsky a, score. Yeah. Um, but a facet of your choreographic skill, too. But it's great, the dancers being so game on trying. Oh, here we go. <laughs> yeah, I love, I love slapstick, so... Don't fall in front of me, I'll laugh. <laughs> Before I say, are you okay? <laughs> and then it goes on, and yeah. it, gets, it goes on forever, and it's fabulous. You have done a lot of storytelling, actually. Uh, we've seen some of it. Um, you've done a couple of full lengths. Um, I've done a, a Nutcracker for Cincinnati Ballet, which is going on their ninth year of that. And this year I'm premiering another Nutcracker for Louisville Ballet in 2009. It's in production now which is a totally different version than the other one. Talk about my head. And I'm still performing this one, so I'm a little bit screwy with the the Nutcracker music. But uh, also a a ballet, uh, a Cinderella, but it's it's called uh, Cinderella Story. And it's uh, Royal Winnipeg is doing it, and I believe they may be touring it here. There's a high possibility. It's... It's a Cinderella, but um, the director called me and asked me to do a Cinderella, but not the Prokofiev music. I got the rights to uh, 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 Richard Rogers' music of taking the scores. I was the first person allowed from the uh, Rogers estate to take Rogers, uh, not the Heimerstein, but the Rogers songs and have them orchestrated in a bluesy and jazzy composition. So the whole ballet is based in the 50s, based on a week before the opening of the um, Julie Andrews uh, TV version of Cinderella, of which it was a big event on TV in the 50s. And so it's based on commercials, TV commercials, and it's based on a real commercial uh, about Bob, Nancy getting ready for her big date with Bob. So it's it's not Cinderella and the Prince, it's Bob and Nancy. But um, uh, Sandra Wildall did the costumes, and they've been touring it around Canada, and they're working on a U.S. tour right now, and so we're hoping to get it here. But. Oh, fabulous. Um, you did another one, The Lady of the Camellias. Lady of the Camellias, which is done um, around the world now, which is nice. It's a Chopin score. It's a, um, based on the, oh, gosh. Traviata. Yeah, Traviata. I'm thinking of the novel, too. But I really was inspired more by the Greta Garbo film, which is uh, the black-and-white Greta Garbo film on that one. Wow. But oh, that's wow. being performed next year, possibly by Atlanta Ballet. We'll be bringing that in. would love to see that. Let's move to the next clip here. And this is more just dance dance, but with visual. Oh, gosh. Forgot about this one. <laughs> it's like, this is your life. <laughs> <laughs> this is really scaring me now. It's like... okay. So tell us about this one. Oh, gosh, it's Seeing Stars. Who was this composer? But it was a play Duk on... Nanye. Duk Nanye. Yeah, yeah, a play on uh, uh, Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star, theme and variations. But it starts out as a serious ballet, but then it just... It's a, it's a musical joke. So it's all variations on Twinkle, Twinkle, Little Star 
She has a star tutu on. I mean, yeah, yeah. Joanna almost killed me when I said, you're going to wear a star tutu. But this is Stephen Legate. One of the things that we may have forgotten in Joanna's later career years was her absolute gift as a comedian. Oh, she's hysterical. She's... I mean, we remember her Giselle. <laughs> but to see this. Was that funny? <laughs> <laughs> no, but just, okay. you know, that was not funny. And she was so good at this. No, I used Joanna Berman a lot. She was sort of my early muse. It was so much fun to find all of this in the archives. Okay, can we pause it? I think we should do that again. I really think we should revive that. Um, Say just a couple words about that whole muse idea, being inspired by one particular dancer. Well, it, uh, Joanna was, I mean, again, you get dancers like Kirk Peterson, and Joanna Berman uh, that are so eager to work things out, even, even if they seem impossible. And if, I always, I never come into a room establishing what the steps are. I really want the dancers as collaborators. It's not like they're choreographing it, but they, I want to listen to them, try things out, and and so all in, all in all, all the time, the dancers are my muse. But there are specific ones that are almost were in every ballet that I would always go back to. Um, for me, it, it, you really do need that. It's nothing worse than walking and having a group of dancers just staring at you deadpan. I mean, it's like it doesn't work. Um, there's got to be an eagerness there. And, and so, but I, I really want, as, as in designers, I want everyone to be a collaborator from the very beginning. I use designers from the very beginning. They have to know the music. They have the music. I don't choreograph it and invite the designers in to go, so what do you think? I mean, they're, they're especially Sandra Woodall, I use her quite often. I was going to get you to talk yeah. about her. Let's save that sure, until we sure. get down the road a little bit. Sure. But, I mean, it's, but, it's all, in my mind, part of the process. Everyone involved in my works are involved from the very beginning. So they're in for the ride whether they like it or not from, from the very beginning. Let's go to the other clip. This is also from Seeing Stars. Um, and I just I was so enchanted to see this again. It's the movement joke. We right. <laughs> could just watch the whole evening, and it just goes on. It gets better and better. But do you just have a good time playing with bodies? Yeah. <laughs> so I, I don't remember this one. This is like, I'm like so, I'm, so if I'm not saying anything, my mouth's open. Going, yeah, I do. I just uh, the hardest point time of choreographing is the very first two or three days. It's painful to me because it's just the nerve nerves and. What am I going to do? How am I going to work this out? Am I going to keep their attention? Is this going to work? Did I pick the right music? Did I pick the right dancers? Or it's, it's all of that. Your insecurities start showing. But then you start rolling along. And it, again, I stress, it helps when you have dancers in the room that are supportive. And, that's, and they, that know this is what you're going through. And, you know, I'm, I'm the same as them. They're just as nervous as I am, you know, basically. I'll try to tell this anecdote succinctly. Um, <laughs> way back when, one of your muse dancers was Ida Holmes. <laughs> yeah. And she, in a skit, at the end of the season, the company sometimes does a party, and everybody does skits that are roasts of the season. And Ida and another dancer, I don't remember who, their skit was creating a ballet for Val. 
and they tied themselves in complete knots, <laughs> upside down, arms, legs, heads, everywhere. Um, but that, that was the gist of it. Exactly. Was this is creating a piece for Val, was to just, and he would say, well, try putting the arm there. We'll put the leg there. Well, what, could you do that on point? What about if you were turning while you did that? But they end up in really a weird compromising position. I remember we had her dad there to come in walk in on us and she looks up and goes hi daddy <laughs> but it was, but he just happened to be there he said we're putting you in the skit so i remember that continue listening to this podcast in part two